This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson and Peryush. I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? Doing pretty good. How are you? Yeah, feeling okay. I'm getting ready for some international travel later this week. So I'm I'm not really sure whether I should even be awake right now or I should just put myself on European time. But, um, you know, here I am. <laughs> You're getting ready. Yeah, perhaps foolishly. Perhaps we should be having this conversation at like midnight. I say, what, what is the time difference? It's about eight hours. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You should probably start to acclimate yourself. Start, start staying up a little late this uh-huh. week. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately I should be sleeping now. I should have gone to bed at like, you know, 12. Ooh. Okay. That wasn't, my, I, I found out, I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced this, but I found out that during a normal work day, um, going to bed at noon, is sort of looked down upon. What? People yeah. don't like a little siesta? No. Well, maybe they would forgive. <laughs> a a, maybe they would siesta? forgive. Yeah, maybe they would forgive like a thirty-minute power nap. But I don't know about an eight-hour siesta. <laughs> well, you know, when they're getting emails at like one or two a.m., though, it, it kind of it'll level out, right? Just level they'll, out. Yeah, they'll be confused, or they'll think that I am just the hardest working person on the planet. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. It's a good trade-off. <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like when you do that, when you send very late uh, emails to people, you run a couple of risks. I mean, there is the risk that they could be like, "Oh, wow, this person really works very hard. Look at this. They work late into the evening." You, the opposite risk is that the person receiving the email sees the timestamp and they think this person has got a problem. <laughs> they need more hobbies or something. Yes, this is out of control. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I agree with that statement. I would say if I receive an email before 10 p.m., I'm like, oh, you know, when you get up like nine o'clock, eight o'clock, I'm like, wow, yeah, this person's working late tonight. Okay, burning midnight oil. No, if it's if it's after 10 o'clock, I'm like, what is going on? Are they okay? Right. <laughs> <laughs> they need to stop drinking coffee and need to go to sleep. Yeah, exactly. It's like, why don't you sleep? Mm-hmm. Where does this insomnia come from? Yeah, yeah. Or the 4 a.m. ones. Those ones, I feel like the early, early morning ones, like the 4 a.m., the 5 a.m. emails, those are even more concerning to me because then if you're shooting them off that early, potentially they could wake your recipient up if they've mm-hmm. got their notifications on. And then now you've got a very angry, sleep-deprived recipient, too, on the That's other true. side. It's true. This is very useful information for anybody who's planning on sending early morning or late evening emails. Consider your audience. How about that? I think that's a fair summation. Just be considerate. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Well, while you are gone, I will remember that you are eight hours ahead. So in case (laughs) you you do send a 4 a.m. email or something, or if I cannot reach you post 12 p.m., I know you're you're sleeping. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Hopefully everybody will give me the same benefit of the doubt. Yeah, just start including it in uh, your your emails at the, the very bottom. That's just, there you go. I'm on a different it. time. 
yeah, I need to do that. And I, or I need to have like an automatic response to make it clear. So yeah. nobody thinks otherwise. <laughs> well, uh, it's a new year, not new us. We're the same, but a new year. And so because it's a new year, it's the appropriate time to bring back our friend, Doug Nelson. Doug, thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Brent. Always happy to be here. And, and by the way, I'm probably that guy that you you wonder about because you know me well enough by now that, hey, if I'm awake at five in the morning and I'm thinking about something that could help somebody, I'm shooting you a message. You, yeah, know? you don't wait. Like, yeah, if you're, no. if, you're, if your dinger's on, I, you know, I can't help that. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody be warned. <laughs> Doug is putting the onus on you. <laughs> I actually think it's okay. I'm I'm the same. Sometimes I'm up early and uh, and uh, my brain gets going early. And so before I forget the thing that I am thinking about, I just go for it. Yeah, I worry that say I wake up at at three. I don't want to get up at three in the morning. But if I'm thinking about something and I I maybe um, have an idea for someone or on a certain project, I'll get up and write it down. So then I can go back to sleep. Mm, that's smart. Just mm -hmm. get it off your mind so you can rest. Well, I think uh, there's been a lot circulating in the news lately about uh, the markets. We're on a now, I think now, five day stretch of negative returns on the S&P 500. Uh, lots of talk about interest rate adjustments in the coming year. Lots of talk about inflation. Lots of talk about the jobs reports. And of course, all the major financial institutions are starting to come out with their projections or have already come out with their projections for the year, which I think is hilarious that they make annual projections, but they do that anyways, probably so they can go to conferences and get paid to talk about it. Um, so I thought maybe we could uh, talk about some of those things, what's going on, what people are thinking or not, and uh, what people should be thinking. Well, just think back to the beginning of 2021, and we heard a lot of the same rhetoric oh, in, inflation's gonna take off, markets are gonna tank, um, all of these things. And yet we had another great year last year, US markets up over 25%, international up over 12. And so it was it ended up being another good year when everyone was concerned about all of these very same things we're talking about now. The one that's probably more prevalent is we have seen some, some pressure on increasing interest rates and we have seen definitely some inflationary trend. And that inflationary trend is an interesting one to me um, because people are asking about, well, how do I avoid or how, how should I structure my portfolio so that I can avoid getting beat up by inflation? And I think it's always good to remember that if we could tell you what was going to be the best investment tomorrow, we all would, we'd be wealthy beyond imagination. So first of all, keep your portfolios structured, keep them where they should be for you. Now, there are certain things that we can be concerned about with an inflationary trend. Equities are still, over lengthy time period, uh, one of the best hedges against inflation. They're going to go up. They might go up and down reacting to certain uh, short-term news, but we expect that whether or not we're an inflationary trend or not. So over lengthy time periods, when you think about the very building blocks of an economy, they're made up of the, the very basics, the commodities, which is why people say, oh, commodities are a great hedge against inflation. Well, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Those companies that are buying commodities, turning them into a finished product, they're gonna be marking up their products, so you're going to get the same impact there. If you have equities, keep them. 
especially if you've got gains in those equities, why create a taxable event just in fear of something that may or may not happen? So first of all, keep your portfolio structured. Number two, look at some things that, that may be a little hurtful if we do see an inflationary trend. Another are things like very, very long-term fixed income instruments. Typically, what occurs at the Federal Reserve is they will increase interest rates to slow down inflation. That works because inflation is caused by two things, and that is a money supply, a large money supply, so that there's a lot of money in the system, and there currently is quite a bit of money in the system, meaning that the Federal Reserve has gone out and bought assets, and they bought it with money, so that money went into the system for people to spend on whatever they wanted to spend it on. So the money supply is high, then that money has to be chasing too few goods and services to drive the price up. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that from a host of different reasons. One is just it's difficult to keep up right now when you can't find anyone to, to go to work because the unemployment rate is so low. We've had supply chain issues and we've got COVID issues. All of those things are creating shortages of goods and services in many cases. So it's pushing the price up. That's the second part of an inflationary trend. The way that the, the government will try and combat that, first of all, is to increase interest rates so that money isn't as available to people. You can't just go out and borrow cheaply and go buy things. If going out and borrowing that money, say even on a credit card, costs you more, you're more apt not to spend it. If you're not spending it, it's not pushing prices up. So interest rate increases are a good way to slow inflation. What that means for interest-bearing instruments is if I have an instrument today that is earning me 3% and the market rate for that goes up because of increasing interest rates, that that same instrument should be paying me 4%, then the value of that instrument will have to go down so that my yield to maturity becomes 4%. So very simply, the longer term that I have to wait to get my money back on that interest-bearing instrument, the more punishment I'll take in the price of it right now as interest rates go up. So keep maturity short in bond instruments. That's kind of a no-brainer to get started for an inflationary trend. And we're definitely seeing that. I mean, inflation jumped in the third quarter and then not quite so much in the fourth quarter. The estimates are uh, right now that that will probably continue. The interesting thing that I've seen is, is some rural locations, I've gotten pictures from, uh, received pictures from clients of even like CVS and Walgreens with shelves that are empty. You think, whoa, that's kind of strange, but that seems to be what's occurring. Well, that would indicate to me there's a shortage of some of those goods. Otherwise, I'd have them on the shelves so people could buy them. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, like you you started there, Doug, it feels like the a lot of the things that you're mentioning are things that have been a common theme for quite a bit now, and uh, particularly on the interest rate side of things and the hedging and and uh, being careful about long-term bonds and not being caught with long-term bonds in your hands if you know that interest rates likelier to to increase because you're just going to get punished mm -hmm. if if you're going to try to divest yourself of those bonds and not hold them to maturity, yeah. uh, you're going to get punished. There's well, a Remember that, Brent, that, you know, I hear that a lot too. Well, just hold them to maturity and you don't get punished. Well, yes, you do. Because that 3% bond of mine that I'm earning 3% on, if I hold it to maturity, that's all I get is 3%. 
-hmm. So between now and maturity of that bond, I'm accepting a below market rate of return if the more current rate is at 4%. Right, right. Plus, plus the devaluation of the thing that you're holding for that period of time, just based on time value of money. So there's a, yeah, you kind of get it on both ends, I think. The the thing that you sometimes see in those um, environments then are are essentially a, a, a secondary market for short for low interest bonds and investors coming in trying to buy them up at a at a discount. Uh, I I mean I would think that if if interest rates go up, you're going to start to see more of that kind of activity. I don't know if it's speculative is probably too too strong a term, but probably more of that kind of activity because it's going to be more available. Is that yeah. your read on it? Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll just see volume go up. And um, remember, U.S. Treasury bonds are the most traded security on any exchange anywhere. So that's where you'll see that activity start shooting up is because of the, the lower risk involved with Treasury issues. Um, they react to market rate changes very, very rapidly. And you'll see people jumping in and out of those markets um, like crazy. That'll be I'll be kind of entertaining. <laughs> kind of entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a variety of entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> We've seen some of that even just last year. The U.S. bond market is actually off as measured by um, the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index is actually down 1.54% for calendar 2021. Now, bonds earned their coupon rates were were definitely not zero. So you may have earned three or four percent. Uh, well, let's just say two, just to be safe, on all of those bonds. However, the underlying value of those bonds went down by 1.54 percent more than you earned on the coupon rate. Ouch. Yeah. Mm, ouch. Yeah. Well, there you go. Word of warning to anybody, uh, <laughs> anybody contemplating uh, buying those long-term bonds at the moment. There's a Interestingly, I think a, a little bit of a divergence, at least that I've seen between some of the projections from the banks. So, for example, I saw at least one report from Bank of America. It, well, this has to do with the S&P 500. So maybe this is this is couched slightly, but um, the Bank of America projection on the S&P 500 in 2022 is actually that it would go down somewhere around nine to 10 percent. And then the JP Morgan projection for the S&P 500 was that it would go up something like nine or 10%. So they're going to different directions, um, but acknowledging similar risks. Uh, I don't know if that is really that meaningful or it's just part of the comedy that I like to see at the beginning of the year when I read these projection reports. It's it's even more interesting to, um, to go back and dig up an old newspaper or something and see what they said in the beginning of, of 2021 and, and find out how many of them said, oh yeah, US stocks are gonna go up by over 20, percent the S&P 500. So yeah, buy them. And this is a sure thing. I'll bet there were at least a handful that said, oh, they're they're definitely going to tank. They're going to be a net zero. Now, it's going to be interesting, you know, going into this year because we're hearing a lot of the same. And yeah, PE ratios are high. But the U.S. stock market seems to just continue to be growing. And it's it's rather interesting. As we talked earlier about world capitalization, which is all stocks traded on all exchanges throughout the world, the portion that is domiciled in the U.S. on U.S. exchanges is growing. And as little as four years ago, 
the U.S. portion was 54% of world capitalization. At the end of this year, it's 60%. So it's going up. Now, what that means is, well, U.S. stocks are, have been doing pretty well. U.S. companies have been doing pretty well for quite some time now. So do you, do you forecast that into the future and say, hey, that trend's just going to continue? Or do you say, no, it's time for the rest of the world to catch up and U.S. stocks will not do as well? And that may very well be what um, Bank of America was saying. That's a really interesting point. I think it's interesting. How do you think in all of this, when we're looking at the the projections for this year, how does crypto play into it? I'm just always a huge crypto nerd. And we've seen right now like Bitcoin being down what's like 35% from it from its high um in the last couple months. And so I'm wondering, you know, how when we're looking at the projected interest rate hikes and inflation and just the U.S. market overall increasing. How does crypto play into all of it? I don't know. When you think about it, <laughs> um, crypto, again, is a currency. A lot of people want to call it an investment, but it's an, an investment like investing in the French franc. You know, it's a currency. Is it going to go up relative to the dollar? If it does, it's a good investment. If it goes down, it's not so good. If it stays flat, it's just flat like the dollar. So I'm not quite sure what I do know is, and I believe we talked about this one or two shows ago, that being crypto like Bitcoin, there's a whole bunch of them out there. And the ones that become the mainstream are the ones that we're all going to wish we'd invested in. And the ones that fall by the wayside will not. I believe at the in the, in the early 1900s, when automobiles first came out, there was like 127 different automobile manufacturers. Now, if we could have picked Ford, Chevy, GM out of those, man, we'd be really happy right now. If we picked a whole bunch of them whose names we've never even heard of, we wouldn't be too happy right now. So that's that's how crypto could be in the future, or shall we say Bitcoin compared to some of the others. Now, we do know that it's going to be part of our life someday. Well, it's part of our life now, but it's going to be a larger part of our, our life going forward. And there's a lot of things out there now um, where certain industries are talking about, well, hold on, we can have our own you know, non-fungible um, effective coins. And how does how's all that going to fit into it? And when is some government going to jump up and start regulating this? It's going to be interesting. I mean, we're we're seeing it, or kind of the apprehensive uh, apprehension of the government regulating industries like social media. Social media has been crying for some form of guidance, and the government's just kind of stayed out of it. And then grandstanding and having these people, well, let's make them come testify. Well, for what? For, you know, why are they there testifying? Are you going to do something or not? If you're going to do something, ask them for some help. They're the experts in it. And the same will hold true for these uh, cryptocurrencies, that the smartest thing that whomever is going to regulate them can do is say, OK, let's sit down and talk to these people that actually created these things, find out what they have and how they're dealing with them and ask them what type of regulation. Because the last thing they want to do is take time out of their day to go testify for no apparent reason. Yeah, to me, cryptocurrencies particularly are interesting because at least as they're Backstory for uh, 
Bitcoin, for example, is this very decentralized, somewhat egalitarian system where you don't have to have intermediaries involved. You can have transactions basically person to person. But in reality, the crypto market that we have now is an intermediary driven market. And many of the coins are being created, apparently not for egalitarian purposes, but purely for normal economic human greedy purposes that drive most of our economy. And it's interesting to me that people seem to uh, like the narrative, but but dismiss the reality. The narrative being this sort of like it's this disruptive this disruptive uh, technology, it's going to disrupt the system, et cetera. The reality is it hasn't really disrupted anything, and it's only really played out as yet another form of people trying to make money off of other people. That's, in essence, what it is, and that's really the the essence of the Bitcoin market, for example. And one of the things I always think about with Bitcoin, particularly when it was going very, very high and now that it's going very low, is actually something that you've mentioned in the past, Doug, which is that if you're a buyer or a seller in a market like this, you have to realize that one of the two thinks it's a good deal, uh, either the buyer or the seller. And you have to figure out if you're the chump or they're the chump. And that's very difficult to know. <laughs> if you knew that, you'd be you'd be much richer than you are today. But that's very hard to know. And that's the that's the real interesting thing about all of these. Uh, should I be buying bonds now? Uh, you know, or should I be selling bonds now? Should I be buying stocks now or selling stocks now? Should I be buying real estate now or selling real estate now? What will determine who the smart guy is and who the 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 chump uh, person is is dependent upon information that we don't have today. It's dependent upon information we'll get tomorrow, and we don't know what that information is. I think I've I've told you this before that if we had that information then we would either be witnessing the second coming of Christ or the first if you're Jewish, or somebody's lying to you. They don't really know. They're just guessing, which is why staying structured, that's the important part of, of financial health. Stay structured. Do what's right for you and your family, your portfolio. If you try and guess what's going to happen tomorrow, all you're doing is setting yourself up to create transaction costs, which may very well be costs in buying and selling things, and or tax. And we know those hurt your returns. We don't know yet what tomorrow will bring, other than yeah. some very interesting times. Yeah, for sure. There's a, well, then I think there's a distinction there between speculative investing, which seems to be what we're describing with jumping in and out of, say, the crypto markets and planning and those, or staying structured as you're describing it. And you know, maybe it merits just a little bit of point of emphasis, what the difference is and why it's so important for people to do the one versus the other. Now, that's not to say that somebody can't do some speculative investing, but you probably wouldn't want to put all of your eggs in that basket. No, we, we typically like people to keep that uh, a very small portion of their portfolio. Um, the, the planning part is the important part. Set up a structure such that the overall risk that your portfolio can and historically has experienced matches the risk that you're willing to accept and historically has generated a premium or a net return that will provide you with the life you want to live. If you can bring a balance between those things, 
then whether or not interest rates go up tomorrow or inflation runs 5% and 6 and 7% for the next two or three years, those things won't matter. They won't matter to you at all because you've, you've structured your family's allocation of your wealth such that it's going to provide you with what you want over lengthy time periods. So short-term fluctuations don't mean that much. The biggest problem, Brent, is most people want to talk about the, the short-term fluctuations. You it's know, very hey, exciting. You know, yeah. hey, you see what happened in the stock market today? Uh, no, not really. You know, I suppose I should check it out every now and then. But mostly, if you're invested in stocks, you shouldn't be invested unless your time horizon for that money is at least five years. What that means is if grandpa passes away and leaves you $100,000 and you want it to buy a house, but you don't want to buy a house until prices come back down and you're convinced they're going to come back down. Don't put that 100,000 into stocks because if prices come down two years from now and that 100,000 is only worth 75 now, you're going to be upset with yourself. However, if grandpa leaves you $100,000 and you're uh, 38 years old, already own your home and you like that home, and that $100,000 is going to be for your retirement when you turn 65, by all means, invest a good portion of it in equities because you have plenty of time to see that um, ride through the ups and downs and provide you with a reasonable rate of return. The planning process, Brent, that's one thing that I'm, I think, a lot about more and more. And I think as financial advisors, in many cases, we tend to think we know what's good for clients and we don't ask them enough. We don't just sit down and say, well, Rachel, what's the biggest thing on your mind right now? And how, how can I help you plan for that? That will lead to some other things that maybe Rachel hasn't thought about, okay? Now, I know Rachel's already thought about this, but a lot of people her age, if you say, well, what's really important? And Rachel will say, well, I wanna make sure that my child goes to college. Well, that's great. We can help you plan for that. Let's set up the 529 plan and let's do some other things to make sure that, that they're doing well right there. And oh, by the way, Rachel, you've got your will and your uh, living trust all set up and everything right. And in many cases, these people say no. And I'll say, hold it here. Now, we're talking about planning for your child's education and you don't have a will set up providing for her custody. What in the world are you thinking? That's much more important than worry about funding college education. Make sure something happens to you. We don't rely on the great state of Arizona to appoint someone to take custody of your child. So it, it gives rise to, to other areas that really are, in many cases, more significant than the dollars. The dollars, they're simply there to provide what you want out of life. That's what they're there for. They have no intrinsic value in and of themselves. I like that. Yes, preach, Doug, preach. That's yeah. like exactly what I want to hear. <laughs> and on top of that, you know, I know I said this last time, and uh, I haven't gotten any bad remarks. Did did we get any bad comments when I said uh, the comments about being a good um, tax attorney or CPA, that if you're not busy, um, you know, there, there's got to be something wrong with you is kind of what I, I <laughs> no. intimated. <laughs> but, People kept calling. <laughs> Unfortunately, we had a very busy end of the year. <laughs> I mean, and it's, if anything, Brent, Rachel, I, man, it's getting worse. I mean, I've had clients say, hey, I want to switch CPAs. And I'm saying, uh, why? You know, it better be a really good reason because the good ones that I know, you know, unless you've got a real connection, they're saying, yeah, I'm sorry, I just can't take any more work right now. 
yeah, the the time horizon for getting things turned over, getting projects turned over. Uh, it just lengthens. You need more patience from clients to be more understanding the busier and busier and busier you are. And yeah, all the accountants that are good are tremendously busy. And they're, although I think, I think accountants as a whole are not very good at it. They're busy to the point of premiums in terms of like, if you want to get their attention and, and get them to work with you, you probably are going to have to pay a premium to do it because there's that much demand. Yeah. And they're not very good at that. I mean, they're so, well, so I say we, because I went through the same thing. I mean, you just feel like, oh, I don't want to raise my rates. I don't want to. But, you know, you're going to have to because otherwise um, you're just not going to be able to take care of everything that you want to take care of. Yeah, exactly. This is going to be a limiting factor. The other thing that I, I think about sometimes is, you know, whatever happened to those, those, there used to be a plethora of really good small bookkeeping services out there for the small business. And I just don't see those anymore. That's just a great market that I think um, someone should be taking advantage of. I just don't see a lot of it. Maybe, maybe, you know, Rachel, um, maybe that'll go the way of, uh, of a lot of these other things. It'll become um, um, systemized. So you don't really have a bookkeeper that you work with. It's you just kind of scan stuff in and it, it does your accounting for you. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I've seen a lot of that already. I think a lot of um, big companies are just internalizing all of those systems where I know a lot of small businesses here in town. It's, you know, pretty much your one stop shop is all online and you've got a person you can reach if you need help, if any issues come up. But otherwise, you're just doing it all on the computer nowadays. I think that's kind of the the way of the future. But, you know, I definitely agree with you that still there's the it's for a lot of small businesses, for a lot of nonprofits, especially that I see. It's good to have that local bookkeeper that can help you making sure that you've got all of your accounts and your reports correct. Yeah. And I I get I get trouble from a lot of the younger people in the office. So I'll say, OK, we'll calculate that. And, you know, they just do it with their keyboard. But. You can hear this is how I do it. That's my old Tim key right there. You know, <laughs> we're very disappointed to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Microsoft Corporation created this program called Excel, and it will literally do all that math for you. Are you kidding? Where did this company, uh, Microsoft, come from? I, I don't know. If I've it's a little startup. Yeah, you got to get on the ground floor now. I'd be, I'd be putting my money in Microsoft, this little, little startup company yeah. out of Seattle. So I, I have a, a question for you. This is this is a little bit of a right turn, so I apologize, and I didn't warn you about this, so this you're, you don't know what I'm going to ask, but but you you you've semi uh, raised it. So for example, with my kids in in school, the emphasis is very much on STEM and STEM related careers. Basically, none of the careers of any of the three of us. So. You know, when you're talking to people considering getting into financial planning, how how do you, if at all, like encourage them or sell the career to them? Because you've had you've had a very fruitful career in in that field. So I'm very curious about your perspective on it. I would say that passion comes in a lot of different forms. And I did tax work for a long time. Um, apparently was decent at it and was forced into the financial planning arena by clients that in the mid and late 80s wanted more 
than a transactional type relationship with an advisor. The more I looked at what they were doing and getting, the more as a CPA, it didn't strike me as having the same integrity that I serviced my clients with. And I wanted to bring that to this industry. So I think that whatever passion a young person has, you can find it in the financial services industry. Now that can be anywhere from like you, Brent, and, and you, Rachel, tax attorneys, CPAs, financial advisory services, all of those types of things. I have um, a young lady here in the office that I work uh, very closely with. Her name is Lily. She's a former, um, you've actually had her on the show, haven't you? She's a former guide on the Grand Canyon. She is passionate about sustainability of the planet. She's turned that into a wonderful career teaching clients here at TCI and prospective clients about how you can structure your investment portfolio to encourage those companies that have a low carbon footprint and help people invest in just those companies so they feel like their investments match their values. That's a great service. And yet the passion behind that has nothing to do with crunching numbers. It has nothing to do with stock investments. It has to do with how do I live this thing that I'm passionate about? And it's, it's interesting because just her presence has made a, a big impact on all of us. As both of you know, I'm an avid fly fisherman. I really enjoy it. One of the things that I've noticed is if I go on a trip somewhere, um, guides and or lodges always have cases and cases and cases of plastic bottles. And I thought, that's just bad. So in talking with Lily, there are filtration systems that work extremely well. So I bought myself one. Now when I go up, say, into British Columbia to fish for steelhead, I'll take my water purifier. It's just a 16-ounce one. You dip it in the river. You push the plunger down and purify the water, and I drink that. No plastic bottles. So that's a difference that she's made here in a financial advisory service company. I mean, all of these things. So I would encourage people that think that they want to be um, an artist, which is a very, very difficult career. Don't just think about art school. Also think about the business of art. Okay. Do I really want to get into this business where if I go through the gallery system, they're going to take half of my sales price? If not, are there online ways that I can sell this? If not, how do I support myself as I'm building my art portfolio? So all of these things think about. And what you may find is you may very well find that you end up wanting to be a specialized advisor here with me at TCI serving nothing but artists. So that's what I tell yeah, you. Yeah, I really like that. It's It's a trying to help people understand that the kaleidoscope of possible ways that you can serve clients in that industry is almost innumerable. There's some angle to it for anybody and you can really, you know, pursue your passions uh, through that industry. Plus you get to work with people like you're talking about, right? Like you got to, if you're going to do the plan, you got to figure out what is it that somebody actually wants. And actually through that process, you do get the ability to influence people. 
yeah. influence their thinking, influence how they view the world. Kind of like it sounds like Lily has clearly influenced you and your behavior. Oh, so. yeah, beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I you know, it's, it's funny because I'll walk into a, a convenience store, and I, even if I'm thirsty or something, I'll look at it. Go, oh, man, Lily would frown at me if I grabbed that bottle of water. So I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for her. <laughs> You're a reformed man, Doug. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate that uh, perspective and you tolerating that off the wall question. But uh, well, Doug, it's always fun to catch up with you. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for doing it. Of course, anytime. It is my pleasure. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And remember, staying structured is the most important thing you can do. I'll always, you know, begin by saying if we had a crystal ball, we'd all be wealthy beyond imagination. And end by saying, always happy to share what I think will happen, but don't invest a dime what we think. Invest your dimes based on what we know. Yeah, very good. All right, well, we'll catch up with you again later in the future. Thanks, Doug. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information, and I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about, and also follow us on social media, at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.